You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, it's that time of year where we are trying to organize and prep and plan for the upcoming season, and some of the gear that we use takes batteries. Now, you should go visit your local Interstate Battery store or visit interstatebatteries.com to check out all the different varieties of batteries that they offer. They have truck batteries. They have batteries for your trail cameras. They have batteries for your range finder and everything else that is electronic that you use for your hunting equipment. They have batteries for that. Interstatebatteries.com. Awesome company. Check them out. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Hey, Steve, the weather is still way too hot here. We're going to be in the 80, high 80s, low 90s with high humidity. But I'm still thinking about the upcoming hunting season. I'm seeing a lot of tech questions coming up on some of our electronic training equipment out there uh, from people that are that are bear hunting. They're in full swing with bear, bear training season right now across the United States. Have you been seeing that a lot on social media? I have. You know, I've been thinking myself about getting up to the mountains of Virginia and doing a little training myself. And, uh, yeah, you know, when technical questions come up, uh, the the normal reaction is call customer service at the uh, equipment manufacturers. And sometimes that can involve a long wait on the phone. Uh, Our friends at W Hunting Supply have great tech support. And I'm told if you call up there... uh, that Jason will get on the phone with you and and get to the root of your problem right away. So uh, if I have a problem with my equipment this fall, that's what I'm going to do. Sounds like a great idea. And Jason's going to be with us at the upcoming major coon hound event or hound event of the United States Autumn Oaks. So he's going to be in the booth with us. So you can stop by our booth, pick up all your Houndsman XP logo wear, and also pick Jason's brain about any questions you might have about your Garmin or Dogtra or whatever whatever platform you're using there to track your hounds. Absolutely. Uh, w Hunting Supply is a one-stop shop for everything the houndsman needs. Uh, they're online at www.dusupply.com. Good morning, houndsmen and houndswomen of America and beyond. We are here with a great podcast of the Houndsmen XP. My name is Eddie, and I will be your host for today. Yes, you may not have heard my voice before, because I'm coming to you from Oregon to interview my guys, 
Steve and Chris. I'm a novice, and I want to pick their brain on how to become a houndsman. So, guys, welcome. <laughs> good morning. That's pretty good, Eddie. Hey, Eddie, you're doing a great job there. <laughs> um, well, thank you, sir. Yeah, I'm really. Trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how are you this morning? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thank well, you. we always talk about the weather. What do you got? I, in Oregon, you probably got some clouds and some rain, maybe. Uh, well, you would you would expect, uh, but no, actually, the sun is just coming up over the trees right now, and uh, we have clear skies. It's probably about sixty-eight somewhere in there, so it's pretty. It's been pretty warm the yeah. past couple of days. Uh, very humid, like out in in Florida. <laughs> uh, oh, these yeah. past couple of days, it's been very humid. Uh, but normally, it's not pretty dry, dry heat um, when it when it is warm. But uh, yeah, it's been beautiful, eighty five, you know, and nice. So, can't are you on the are you on the coast or, or are you in the eastern no, part? No, sir. I'm or... about uh I'm about uh an hour and a half from the coast. So. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm not too far from there. We like to uh, take a couple trips out there and go have fun with the ocean. It's not like Florida beaches. <laughs> I think they're more, I think they're more beautiful from what I've seen. Oh yeah, you know it's 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 different. You know, I've lived in Florida. I, I used to live in uh, Winter Park. Um, oh yeah, and so you know, uh, Central Florida go you know everywhere, but. Um, yeah, it's 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 different. It's nice, you know. They both have their, you know, their beautiful places. So, my yeah. grandparents used to uh, pull an RV from Columbus, Indiana, all the way down to Winter Park, and spend the winters down there. They had an airstream, and if, my grandpa was very meticulous, and he kept that thing all shined up, and the inside was immaculate. And, but uh, that was back. They actually started doing that back before the days of the interstate system or before it was complete all the way down through there. So they would drive US-31 from Columbus all the way down and then, you know, hop off somewhere. But it used to take them, uh, they'd take three days just to drive to Florida. And now with the interstate system, you know, I'll hop in a truck and or a car, and, and I could be at Steve's in, in a single day if I want a road warrior that trip. Yeah, yeah. I uh, had the pleasure of taking the bus from <laughs> Winter Park to uh washington state so uh <laughs> i understand <laughs> well I my understand first how that goes. yeah my first experience with florida was coming to college in in uh, 1966 from west virginia and it was on a greyhound you had to ride it <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. uh, it, and That's it was I traveled it was the milk run. We stopped at every little town between West Virginia and Florida. It took us 20-some hours, as I recall. Those highways on the East Coast were Highway 301 and and 321 and some of those things. And, so did, uh, did, did yeah. Holman ride you on the back of the mule to the bus terminal? <laughs> how long, how well, long was a mule actually, ride? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, uh, I lived in the corner uh, or in the edge of town. You know, we were city folk. I mean, I could walk across the highway and I was in the country. Yeah. But, uh, man, we had, uh, you know, we had running water and uh, 
and they paved the street when I was a kid. Uh, uh, hmm. We used to have what they called Red Dog on the street. Does anybody have an idea have what Red no Dog clue. is? Red Dog is like a slag that comes out of the mines, and actually after they burn the coal. Uh, after they burn the coal and it's like a clinker, maybe you yeah. heard of that. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a iron color, reddish color and it's brittle and it's all kinds of crazy shapes. And they, in West Virginia, they used to put that down for a hard surface on the road. And of course, uh, uh if you haven't r- ridden your bike and, and hit a, a good size chunk of red dog and done a couple of flips over the handlebar <laughs> you haven't lived you know so, anyway i don't know how we got down this rabbit yeah. Path. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh boy so i got a question for y'all so chris yeah. uh how did you get involved with uh hound well uh you know i was just your typical kid and and grew up in the country grew up in a, on a farm and and uh, I've told the story before, Eddie, but I'll just also I'll kind of breeze through it pretty quick here. But uh, when I was a kid, we would we would go to my uncle's house uh, for th- for holidays, Thanksgiving, things like that. And and he always had probably way too many hounds tied around there. And and but they always intrigued me even as a kid. And he was he was your typical houndsman, uh, hard hunting guy and. He would sit, <laughs> we'd be sitting on the porch and the sun would start going down and you start seeing him shifting in his chair, you know, and, and <laughs> you could tell, you could tell that he, he didn't want to be rude and, and tell you he was leaving, but you could tell he was getting restless and, and eventually he would just get up and go out to the truck and start packing things up and getting ready to, to, to go hunting and, loading those hounds and stuff and that was kind of our cue that we either needed to go hunting with him or uh, we could sit on the porch as long as we wanted or we could go home it was up to us so uh it's kind of like right. kind of like my great-grandfather uh he used to he used to go to bed at eight o'clock every night and he would say he would always look at us and say well i don't want you people to feel bad uh, about leaving so i'll just go to bed and that's kind of the way that's kind of the way Bart was with hunting. He's like, you know, I don't want you feel, people to feel bad about leaving early, but I'm going hunting. So that's how that's how right. I got rolling, Eddie. And uh, he actually gave me my first hound. I hunted with him for a couple of years there, off and on as often as I could. And and I was 13 years old when I when I got that first hound. So just took off from there. Yeah. What, what kind of what kind of hound was it? It was an English red tick, and. Um, huh his name was hawk and he was a good looking dog and deep dark liver red um yeah I, I, he did i don't know who 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 is more worthless in the woods me or hawk he never turned into a coon hound uh, <laughs> partially because i didn't know what i was doing and uh, uh i'm sure he could have he could have turned into something if if he would have had more a more experienced hand on him because he was out of some of that old blood uh he had uh, Boyd's Little Joe and and uh, some of the goose Wilder's goose, I think. I, I'm trying to recall from memory, but it was older older English red tick or older English blood. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, you know, starting off, you know, you 
sometimes you might ruin a couple of dogs before you get it right. Well, I think that's but, that's uh, the value of having this podcast, Eddie, is and having you come on here and host this and talk to us because you know even though you don't have a a, a, a hound that you're hunting yet, you're you're interested and you're fired up, and that's kind of how uh, we got to know each other and. Uh, right. I, when you first, I'll add this real quick. When you first, uh, uh, asked to join the group, uh, on our Facebook page, I always look at people's profiles on there. And I do that for a couple reasons. The main reason is to make sure that we're not having infiltrators coming in and have, have access to everybody's profile. So we don't want to give people's email accounts or their profiles or anything to the anti-hunting crowd. So I was looking at yours and I actually denied your uh, your membership on the on the Houndsman XP podcast group at one time and see <laughs> wow yeah and sent you a message and and you responded and right, uh, right. we started talking and I could tell that you were a guy that that even though you weren't an experienced houndsman you had a passion uh, for wanting to get into hounds and 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 yes, so that's how we kind of develop this concept of you interviewing us and you hosting today so yeah i'm i'm glad to be here i'm I'm tickled man so yeah thank you for uh accepting my my membership because uh yeah you're right i remember uh you uh you messaged me and uh we chatted a little bit and then boom i was i was able to uh be in the in the membership so that was a good thing, and I'm I'm happy for it. So, uh, question for you, Steve. I know that uh, when your your dad has uh, been a pretty big influence uh, in your life as you grew up, you know, becoming a houseman. Did you have any other mentors that you uh, looked up to? Well, I did, Eddie. Um, my uncles, primarily. Uh, my dad had two brothers. He was the middle brother. Uh, he had an older brother, Phil, that was a couple of years older, and a younger brother, Julian. Uh, and they always had dogs on their farm back there in Tennessee. So when we'd go to visit, you know, there was always dogs around and talk of going hunting, either rabbit hunting or squirrel hunting or coon hunting at, at a very young age. And, uh, of course, when I started out following my dad's footsteps, and I think listeners are pretty, you know, pretty familiar with that story. Mm-hmm. But as I got a little older and I, my father worked away a lot. He was a pipe fitter and worked up and down the Ohio Valley building powerhouses and chemical plants and such. And he would be gone during the week. And there was a fellow in our church uh, whose name was Howard Meadows and Howard was, was kind of my hero as a young guy coming up because Howard had been through a really tough life. He grew up in a coal mining town there in West Virginia, went into the army, uh, world war two. He was captured by the Germans, uh, in Italy, put into a prison of war camp, uh, at the close of when the Germans kind of, uh, uh, bugged out as as they say and uh, were trying to get back i think to to uh, their homeland they kind of left these prison camps unattended and howard was able to get out and he had to travel back through enemy lines uh to get back to to some safety so he'd endured all that 
and had a purple heart. Uh, but then when he came back home and went to work in the mines, as everybody does there in that part of the world, he was very severely injured when they call the rib, uh, the sidewall like of the mine kind of collapsed in on him. And he got a very serious back injury and, and had some internal problems and all. But he was one of the toughest guys that I ever met. He walked with a very severe limp. And, uh, but he would go hunting and hunt all night with you. And my dad was gone. And so I would go with Howard and he and I hunted many, many nights together. So he was a definite influence. Uh, I think probably, you know, my dad had much more uh, experience in teaching me the ins and outs of hounds than, than Howard did, but, mm -hmm. but keeping me in the woods and teaching me wood lore and how to be a woodsman and how, you know, we groundhog hunted with dogs in the daytime. We squirrel hunted, we trout fished, we did all kinds of things together. And, and he was a great influence in my life as well. So there's been a lot of people down through the years because I've been so crazy over these hounds and trying to learn everything that I could and associate with the people. There's some pretty funny stories about, how, you know, I would go hunting with the town drunk if I could, uh, you know, when I was a kid and, and literally that happened a couple of times. My parents wouldn't have been happy to know that, uh, on some of those coon hunts that I went along, the guys were, uh, sitting there passing the jug back and forth and I would have to get them up and keep them moving because I knew if they got too much into yeah. that jug, I was they, they, they were going to stay there and I was going to be stuck. So anyway, right. but that's, uh, I, I'd say Howard Meadows besides my dad was probably one of the greatest influences on me. Okay. Okay. So another question for you, uh, Steve, uh, what is your definition as a houndsman, like, you know, what, what would you call a houndsman? Well, I, first of all, I think a houndsman as a, as opposed maybe to, uh, uh, people that use hunting dogs for other purposes, such as bird hunters or, or duck hunters or, mm -hmm. or, uh, whatever the hound, you know, is, is a unique animal. He's a scent, uh, specialist. You know, and I, I don't know the thing, uh, for me with a houndsman is someone that goes beyond the idea of just getting a dog, going to some kind of competition, whether it's a field trial or a bench show or, or a night hunt and, and, and the object being a trophy. I think the true houndsman is a guy that number one, loves the dogs down deep inside. Gotta have that love for the scent hound world. Uh, watching the dog work, listening to a dog trail, uh, seeing that dog use the tools that God gave him, uh, to, to put that quarry in a tree or bring it around to the gun or whatever. So down deep inside, first of all, it's gotta be a love for the dogs, uh, number one. And then number two, I think it's to learn as much about, uh, the particular game animal that you're hunting with those hounds. Uh, that was always one of the most important parts of me is, is knowing where to go, uh, in the case of coon hunting, which has been my number one sport, uh, was knowing at what times of the year to hunt where, uh, knowing, uh, what that dog's telling me. So it's a communication thing between the hunter and the dog. 
And I'm reminded now with the, the electronic devices that we have, how many young people are just, you know, watching that screen all the time and they're not really learning that dog, you know, and that communication between the dog and the hunter, I think that's at the core of being a true houndsman. I could go on and on, but that that's pretty much it. I can, I can follow up with that a little bit, Eddie, if you don't mind, you know, you know, I, I, I've answered this question when other people have asked me too about being a houndsman. And of course, when I was 13 years old, I wanted to call myself a houndsman. Um, and truly believed at that time that since I had a, a coon dog and a light and, and could go hunting that I was a houndsman. And even at age 15 or age 50 now, um, I still realize that I've got so much more to learn. Uh, after, after several, a few decades of hunting and things like that, you know, do we ever really achieve that title of houndsman? Uh, houndsmanship is so involved in knowing, like Steve said, you've got to develop that woods lore. You've got to understand, um, what your dogs are doing, what they're trying to tell you, uh, where you're going to turn them loose you got to be able to read sign. You got to be able to know how old the track is before you turn loose on it. If you're, if you're big game hunting, uh, you've got to be able to identify, uh, if you're rigging dogs down the road, you've got to know whether or not, uh, your old dog is, is giving you a strike. Give you an example. You got, you got, uh, three dogs tied up on the rack and you've, and, and you've got one true hound up there that is, is pure and, and they're going to, strike a track and it's going to be the game that you're looking for and then you got two young dogs up there you know they may they may strike on a deer they may strike on a coon they may whatever you're hunting that day but but you've got to know what those dogs are telling you and then finally i i always say this you know there i know several people that hunt Uh, in my career i met thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were in the field hunting. And over that course of my career, uh, I just met a handful of people that were true sportsmen or woodsmen, you know, that, that were comfortable in the woods, right. that knew the woods. They could tell you the difference between a red elm and a beech and a, and a white oak or a pin oak. Or they knew, the, knew what a service berry was. They knew when the, the raspberries were going to be ripe. They knew those sort of things. And that just takes time. And, and so while we all aspire to be a houndsman and be able to wear that title, whatever that, that title means, uh, a true houndsman is humble and they realize that they're never going to stop learning, not only from their own experiences, but from the people they associate with and, and the realization that they can still learn things from, from people who may not have as much experience as they do. You know, so it's a humble, it's a humble type thing, too. Right. Good, good, good. Perfect. And that leads me to my next question. So, you know, what are the phase, what are the phases that you went through to get to the level that you're at right now? And Chris, keep going with that. Please. Okay. Well, it's funny that you should ask that. Nick Gilliland of, um, uh, is what's his nightlife yeah, kennels. Night, night kennels. He identified, yeah. he recently mm-hmm. did a video and he identified the four stage <laughs> stages of houndsmen. And I think he did a good job. Right. Um, 
on that. Yeah, that's that's where I got that question yeah. from. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Part of my part of my job duties as a conservation officer for several years was to teach hunters education, and the International Hunters Education Association breaks this down into actually five stages, and uh, uh, it's not any different for houndsmen, but you've got. I'll just lay this out as a typical kid, you know, my own experience. So when I first started hunting, you know, I enjoyed going out and uh, just shooting a gun. You know, I, I really like to shoot. Um, and, and most beginning hunters want to feel the recoil of the, the firearm in their shoulder. And, and so you get into this stage where you want to shoot. And then um, as you get a little more experience, then you move into what's called the uh, limiting out stage where your identity as a hunter is is closely related to being able to kill a limit of squirrels you know if if you didn't kill your lim- daily bag limit of five squirrels walking out of the out of the woods in that stage you identify that as a failure because you did not kill five squirrels and then you move as you as you get more experience and you understand then you get into the method stage um or I'm sorry, the trophy stage, you get into the trophy stage where you feel like that, you know, I've got to kill a big deer. I've got to kill a big elk. I've got to kill, you know, trophy type animals. And, and you identify your hunt that way as if you didn't do that, that your hunt was a failure. And then you get into what's called the method stage. And the method stage is, is, uh, you know, how you hunt the animal. And you feel like that if, if people aren't deer hunting with a flintlock rifle or traditional equipment or a bow or or whatever they're doing then then their method is wrong and you judge people on that and you feel like that if that that if you're not uh going by these self-imposed rules that you put on yourself and other people that that your hunt is a failure and then finally you get into what's called the sportsman stage or the mentoring stage and that mentoring stage or the sportsman stage is where you've come full circle and you understand that it's better to see people out there hunting and and getting other people involved in hunting than how they're hunting, how they're what method they're using, whether killing big deer or small deer, you know, those are the types of things that sportsmen do. And and we relate that back to houndsmen, you know, like that the shooter stage. You can relate that directly to some of the videos you see on Facebook where guys think the biggest thing that they can put on facebook is or social media is a picture or a video of a pup barking at a cage coon i was there that's why i brought home that first red tick is because my uncle brought that out there's a cage coon there and man that's that dude could sing on that cage coon and i thought i was walking in high cotton so we go through the same stages regardless of what we're pursuing, but for houndsmen, you can you can tie that into every every part. You know, for the for the limiting out stage, you know, I was when I was when I was fifteen, seventeen years old, you know, my uncle would come in and he'd have six coons on the tailgate and I treed one. And I felt like my I failed as a hunter. So you can relate it right back to our houndsmen too. I'd like to jump in there just a minute, Eddie. Uh, We talk about these phases of of hunting and and how we progress along the way. And, uh, you know, I've been around hounds all my life. I I spent countless days in the woods as a kid and all the way up through my married life. I even hunted when I was in Japan uh, with the Air Force. 
but you know, it's, it's a never ending process. And I'll give you an example. I was at UKC, had been there quite a while and, uh, had, uh, we had a big game column in the Coonhound Bloodlines magazine. It was written by a fellow named Gary Washburn and Gary lived out in, in New Mexico. And I knew the Washburn family and maybe, uh, listeners out there would, will remember a, a book called General Red about a, a red bone uh, bear dog. And if you haven't read it, it's worth your time. It was written by uh, this Gary Washburn's brother, Ozzy Washburn. But anyway, I asked Gary to write a big game column for Coonham Bloodlines magazine, and he did a great job with it. And he invited me out to New Mexico to go bear hunting with him on a, on a, a authentic uh, horseback bear hunt, dry ground, um, with his Walker hounds. And, uh, and I took him up on that and I went out and, and, uh, and I had a great time out there. And, uh, and I, in fact, uh, well that, um, uh, translated, I did take a plot female with me out there too. And so anyway, I had a great hunt. What I'm getting to is I met a gentleman out there that Gary Washburn told me that this is the last of the old Ben Lilly type hunters that I know. His name was George Hobbs. Uh, George, I hope you're still out there and kicking. And the last I heard, uh, uh, George was in Oklahoma. But George Hobbs was a consummate houndsman. He could read sign like I could read a newspaper. Uh, he showed me all that I know, and it's not very much, but I could tell George, you know, I mean, he could look at a cat track and tell me all kinds of things about that cat, what sex it was, which direction it was traveling, uh, all of these kind of things. And, and I say that to say, you know, this, it, this houndsmanship is a never ending process. And no matter how much we think we know. And, you know, I've been at that point where, you know, well, I have accumulated a lot of knowledge and I'd love to share that with people, but there's people out there that know so much more than I do. So, uh, getting back to, to these stages and all, no matter what stage we're in, there's always that next stage that we can move to. And, and the great thing about, uh, the hound fraternity is that we have people out here that are willing, uh, to share their knowledge, uh, not in a condescending way, not in a holier than thou way, not in the attitude that I'm the pro and you're the rookie, but uh, they're willing to teach and to show if you're willing to learn. And I think that's a point to be made there. Uh, one other thing, one other thing I'd throw in there real quick is I think your true houndsman will never identify with that level. You know what I mean? They they right. they will never sit back and say I'm a houndsman. Um, right. The person that is truly reached because they that humility kicks in. How old were you, Steve, when you went out there and hunted with Gary Washburn? Oh well, let's see. I was in I was easily uh, in my forties, and you probably upper forties. You'd been hunting your whole life, but yet you recognized yeah. that there was something to learn there. Sure. Absolutely. And I'm still doing it through, through, uh, this podcast as I talk yeah, to people. Yeah, me too. And, uh, 
Yeah. Every, that's a cool thing about doing the podcast, Eddie, is is we get to bring all these subject matter experts in here for, you know, wherever they're from or whatever they're hunting and, and glean their glean their minds or their experience and, and share that with everybody. And that's the most awesome part of right. of doing the podcast for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I I've learned <laughs> I learned so much just from listening to y'all. Uh, you know, in, in the podcast and different things, and you know, it's very very informational and uh, helpful. You know, in becoming just uh, you know getting out there and 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 wanting to uh, you know coon hunt or grab hunt, whatever kind of hunt you're doing with your hound, but just getting in tune with your hound. You know, you got to build that relationship with that dog and, and, and know what it's trying to tell you. And just like you said, you know, you never stop learning. You know, that's just like in my trade, you know, you might have been doing it for a long time, but there's every day there's something that you're figuring out, a way to make things quicker, a way to do this. You know, you're thinking ahead. So totally get it. And, and yeah, you guys are spot on. So question for you uh what could i look for in becoming you know a new hunter like what what kind of things should i be aware of when i uh you know get my hound and start getting out there steve okay uh i think the biggest mistake that most new houndsmen make is being over anxious to get a dog and being gullible <laughs> uh, for lack of a, a better word unfortunately there are people out there that you know can it, it's like a shark they smell blood in the water when somebody's new and and they realize that they don't really perhaps know the the, uh, the uh the rope so to speak and so uh you know the, the the young hunter or the new hunter doesn't have to be young it can be anybody that's new to the sport wants to jump right in with both feet, man, I'm going to buy this dog. And, and they listen to the stories and they don't go hunting with that dog and they don't take the time to really, uh, um, decide if this is the right dog for them or for their situation. Uh, without getting into a big deal on that, I, I always tell people the best thing that a young hunter can do is to go find an older dog. Uh, that's maybe on the downturn of its life. It's a broke dog. It's not going to be running trash. It may not be the flat. It may have lost a step or two, uh, but it's still solid. It, you know, it's a good, a good trailer, a, got a good nose, uh, a good stay put tree dog. Uh, many times in this game of competition hunting that I've been involved in with so many years, I have once he finishes out into a, a grand night champion or whatever, uh, the, the hunter gets disenchanted with him and, and says, well, I'm, I'm going to get another pup and start over. So these kind of dogs are out there, but the, the point I'm making is get an older dog. You can get one for a reasonable price. Let that dog teach you. And then when you've, you've got your feet on the ground and you and that dog are, are working together, then consider going out and getting a well-bred puppy uh, out of proven stock of dogs. In my case, I prefer a family-bred dog. And get that puppy 
and then and, and then let that older dog uh, uh, start that pup for you and move in that direction. Don't fall for the hype. The the dogs on sale. Uh, that if it sounds like it's too good to be true, it probably is. Oh, yeah. And uh, and so I think that's one of the main pitfalls that young hunters get into uh, going into the sport, and then overconfidence too at a, at the at the early stages. You know, don't be afraid to to say I don't know much about this. It would be like me going out there to New Mexico and telling George Hobbs that man, I know all about this lion hunting stuff. Step back and watch me. You know, mm-hmm. I, and uh, the, uh, you know it it doesn't work that way. And um, but anyway, I I think that's the one of the pitfalls that young hunters fall for, and it can be avoided. You know, uh, go right. hunting with the dog. There's a there's an unwritten rule among houndsmen. If you don't know the dog, make sure you know the man that's got the dog. So if Chris Powell tells me this dog is thus and so, I know pretty much that that's the way that dog's going to be. But the guy on the internet with the big story, mm, maybe not. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, that took away my other question. As let, me, far as let me follow up. When you let first... me follow up real quick, Eddie, if you don't mind. Can I can Please I do. jump in there? I would add, I would okay. add to that. You know, one of the pitfalls that that the beginning hunters make. Beginning hunters need to go find the guy that is successful. So surround yourself with successful people. You know, we always get this idea that I'm going to get a dog and then I'm going to start hunting. And Randy Smith outlined this in the in the episode that we have with him you know go learn the sport purchasing that dog and the equipment that goes with it the care of that dog is a huge responsibility and it's also a huge investment so unless you know for sure that that sport is for you why are we buying dogs you know because we watch where the red fern grows or or uh you know, one of the 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 story of Bugle Land, and we romanticize about it, or or the yearling, or something like that. You know, going way back in movies. You know, that's how that's how my romantic thinking started about hounds. But um, a young hunter or a new hunter would be doing themselves a great service by going and finding an experienced hunter, joining a, an organization. You know, out there where you're at, you've got the Oregon United Sporting Dog Alliance or association. I'm not sure what the A stands for. If if I was going to talk to a young, or a new hunter, I would tell them, go get involved with that. G- pay your membership. It's a, it's a 35 or maybe a $40 investment that you're going to make up front. And, and out of that investment, you're going to be at these events. Maybe you don't even have a dog yet, but you're going to learn where you need to look for that dog. You need to spend some time in the field with an experienced houndsman, uh, ch- pursuing the game that you're looking to pursue, learning as much as you can, and then you'll know what type of dog that you actually need to do that, rather than doing an internet shop uh, or a classified, you know, off the classified boards or something like that. So, the most important thing that you can do <clears throat> is familiarize yourself with the sport first, find out who the successful people are. And then pick their brains and learn everything you can from them. And you'll avoid a lot of the pitfalls that, that new houndsmen make. You know, one of the things I see a lot is, and it's very well-intentioned, so I'm not, I'm not 
shooting anybody's, you know, shooting anybody in the leg here, but I will see uh, a litter of puppies that is advertised and they, they say, I will give a, a puppy to a new hunter. In my mind, you are setting them up for failure. You know, if it's not somebody that's local, if it's not the kid down the road that you're, that you're willing to mentor with that puppy, then a lot of times we're setting these new hunters up with, uh, for failure because they are going to make mistakes and it's just like anything else. You know, if you want to play football and you go out and, and, uh, uh, want to take your first practice with a, with the Seahawks or, or whoever, and you get knocked on your butt enough, you're going to realize that's not fun and you're not going to want any part of it. But if you can start out at the right level and, and get a, a coach that, that can walk you through how to play football and how to do it correctly, then you're going to be successful and you're going to enjoy it. And the same thing applies to hound sports. Yeah, very true. Very true. Okay, so moving forward, um, Steve, I have a question for you. As far as, uh, you know, competition dogs and pleasure dogs, now, you want the best dog that you can you can have, period. But, you know, it seems as if the competition dogs are, are better, or am I missing something here? Why do, um, it, to me, it seems like, the competition dogs are more sought after as far as, um, you know, you know, they win, they do this, but what's the difference between a competition dog and a pleasure dog? What makes them different? Well, that, that co- division or those connotations are pretty popular in the coonhound world. And generally speaking, a guy said, well, this is a good pleasure dog. It, what that translates to mean, I've entered him in a lot of night hunts and I can't win with him. So therefore <laughs> he's a, he's a pleasure, he's a pleasure dog. Uh, we'll put him down in that category, you know, but, okay. uh, but, but typically there are pleasure hunters and competition hunters. The competition hunter is the guy that is competitive by nature. He loves playing a game and, and really this coon hunting in competition is a game. I had a friend named Les Rogers that worked for uh, the Purina company years ago, was a blue ticker, and he would always say that was his motto, it's only a game. And people get real worked up all about it, but it is a game that we play with dogs. And there are rules, and those dogs have to be able to perform according to those rules. So you got a couple hours out there that you can – you know, and hopefully you want the dog to be quick at everything he does. Hard hunter, quick strike dog, quick tree dog, stay put, all this. And then that morphs into all kinds of possibilities of things, different ways people think that you have to win or the type of dog you have to have to win. Typically a pleasure dog. Uh, for most people is a dog that they enjoy going out there in the middle of the week. They turn the dog loose. He's broken off a trash. He's not, when he opens, uh, he barks, he's on a coon track or, or this could also be, I guess, uh, um, in applied to big game hunting as well. Um, but this is a dog that, you know, it's just the solid cooner. He's got one thing on his mind. He wants to go tree a raccoon. He's usually good to listen to. He's, um, he doesn't hunt out of the country. 
Uh, he he's easily handled. Uh, when you want to go home, you can put your hands on him and take him home. So that, you know, is in generally speaking is a pleasure dog. I think a lot of people get this idea of the, uh, eight minute or eight seconds of fame, you know, uh, that, uh, they have to have, uh, uh, in competition. So generally speaking, a competition dog is a dog that, it, that performs according to the rules, uh, of the given organization, whether it's UKC or PKC or whatever. And the pleasure dog is generally the dog that a guy just enjoys going and treeing raccoons with the dogs of pleasure. And I think that's where the word comes from to hunt with. And, uh, so, you know, uh, generally speaking, that would be the difference. Okay. Yeah. What, what, what I got from that is, like you said, I put them in a couple of night hunts and he didn't win. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. you know, you want, when, when you go pleasure hunting, you want all the same things that, you know, you're going to do in a competition. You want them to strike off fast. You want them to get, make sure he's on the track. You want him to treat a coon. I mean, that is the end game. That is the goal while we're out there, we want the meat in the tree. So basically when you enter him in that competition, he doesn't win. And all of a sudden he's a pleasure dog, but I I understand what what you're telling me. Well, I think if I could, yeah, if I can jump just a little bit here and I don't want to monopolize this, but, uh, the times change, you know, there was a time that we could say the, the pleasure dog in the comp will win in competition. And that will, you know, if you've got a good solid coon hound, you can win no matter what, you know, and, and we hear about the hunts for money where that money's awarded at the end of the hunt, whether the points were plus or circle or minus, there's always a winner to every cast. And, and, and that school of thought, but the idea is that, uh, today, I think more than any other time in our history of this sport, uh, the dogs that are really sought after as competition dogs aren't pleasure dogs at all. They're dogs that hunt far and wide. We have this, uh, saying that they, they get, uh, uh, you know, deep and lonely and with two looking down, in other words, get struck, get through the country as far as you can get treed, um, you know, use up most of the clock to go score the dog. So that's not the guy that's got to get up at five o'clock and go to work in the morning is not going to want to hunt that dog on Wednesday night, you know? So, uh, so there's been a, a, a big change, I think, uh, from the time when, the pleasure dog and the competition dog were one and the same. Now that seems that that gap has widened considerably. All right. Okay. Well, so moving on, why do you think there is a decline in the number of hunters and houndsmen, um, as there were from before Chris? Well, I think uh, part of it is just the demographics and age. Uh, I've studied this and, and researched it quite a bit. Uh, when when guys came back from World War II, I'll back up before then. Um, at the turn of this nineteenth, the early the early twentieth century, you know, 
still 75% of our population was agricultural based. And Mike Thorman touched on this. He said the farther people get away from the farm, the less uh, in touch they are with reality. You know, when you grew up on the farm, you knew where your food came from. And there wasn't a TV. There wasn't a lot of entertainment. So people hunted. Uh, It served two purposes. One, it was fun. It was a recreational thing. But also it supplied food for the table. So as we progress through the, the 20th century, we have this break in the 20th century called World War II where these these boys left the farm. They went and served with uh, the armed forces, had a great victory. They developed deep camaraderie, fraternal relationships with the people they served with, and they came home. Uh, a lot of them never returned to the farm, and we went into the industrial age where our World War II veterans moved to town. Uh, they had a job. They were they were making money, but they still had that fraternal feeling of uh, wanting to be with other like-minded people. And a lot of the hundred people they hunted with were World War II veterans. So you saw the uprise of things like the Isaac Walton League, and in the in the uh, wildlife profession we call that the golden age of conservation because you saw all of these local conservation groups popping up and these guys would go to their uh lodge meetings or their club meetings and and be involved in in with with other hunters and develop these ideas on um wildlife propagation you know we had people that would would work with the dnr and and encourage them to hey we don't have any rabbits we love to rabbit hunt so let's let's figure out a way to bring rabbits here from from kansas or you know rough grouse from missouri and and we saw that golden age of conservation and as we we go on um we just failed to mentor other young hunters to come into the sport um and and this is no disparagement against our world war ii veterans at all i think it's i've even felt this myself as a desert storm veteran where you know i when i got back from that that conflict i enjoyed spending my time with other veterans because i could identify with them and uh had this feeling that other people didn't understand so at some point it became an exclusive deal and we failed to mentor people so here we are in 2019 and we're sitting back and we're scratching our heads and saying why don't we have more hunters well it's because we failed as as a sporting group a group of sportsmen to properly mentor and and uh, continue we're def we're definitely in 2019 the North American model of wildlife conservation is the most amazing story for wildlife that the world has ever seen. But we failed to deliver the message over the years, and we be, we've, we've developed this identity crisis where uh, we've allowed the anti-hunting to, to hijack several key terms like conservation. You know, um, these extreme groups are identified in the media as conservation groups, and they are not. Um just like the term trophy hunting, you know, if it was not for the people, the men and the women who were going out there and trying to harvest mature animals, take them out of the population so that the population could continue to grow and flourish, then we would have no wildlife on the landscape at all. And as my good friend Clay Newcomb often says about trophy hunting, I am preaching it, my brother. 
you know, there, I am not ashamed, you know, of being a hunter. And, and so he does a good job there, but that's, that's the reason we've got this decline. We, in, in the number of hunters and, and some of it's just natural, you know, our whole, our hunters are gray. You know, I'm, my hair's gone and my, my beard's gray. So how can we, uh, how can the husband community be more inclusive in, in getting these younger hunters started and you know what what would be you know sort of a solution to grow it i'm going to defer to steve (laughs) (laughs) okay eddie um yeah as chris was talking there i I remember when i was at the ukc uh, i read a headline in the wall street journal and an article about the decline in clubs across America. And of course they weren't talking about hound clubs. They were talking about the animal clubs. We call them the moose, the elks, the lions, the eagles, uh, the bowling leagues, all of those kind of things back in the eighties and nineties began to see a decline in membership as people were less likely to be, uh, uh, affiliated with a club and the club has always been at the heart of of the hound sport for most people, maybe not so much out West where the more rugged individualist is, is, uh, is the norm. Uh, but out East, uh, you know, we typically, you go to a coon hound event on a Saturday. It was an all day event. Uh, they had all kinds of things to do. The kids were running around playing. There were chicken on the grill. There was, uh, there was a water race going on and in a field trial and, and at, at night there was a night hunt. And, uh, um, so anyway, that has declined. And I think that has been part of the problem. And of course, you know, as we go to social media and the devices that we have now, we're all becoming more inclusive. You know, we don't seek out other people of like, uh, you know, birds of the feather, right. so to speak. So I think right. that's been one of the main things. And then the other things are, of course, the loss of hunting territory and, and that, and the fact that kids are being raised in the cities now instead of the country. But when we look at all that, I see a silver lining. Uh, I see young people. I see people like you, Eddie, uh, that are interested in getting into the sport and, and in large numbers. And I used to think I knew basically everybody in the, uh, what we'll call the organized hound game. Uh, and now, you know, I look, uh, at, at, uh, names, uh, in magazines and I look on social media and I know very few people compared to what I did before. So there is an interest out there and it, it really behooves us to, to recognize that there are people like Eddie out there that want to uh, learn about this sport, want to be involved in it, and need to know how, how to do it. And, and uh, I applaud the registries like the UKC and the PKC that are doing youth programs to try to get these kids involved. And uh, uh, I have... Uh, an idea about that. I think a mentoring program is, is going to be much more effective than the fact than just having a big day where we give the kids all kinds of prizes 
and then they forget about it until the next year. But that's another subject for another day. But I do see a silver lining in this cloud, uh, and uh-huh. I think it's it, it, and it is uh, uh, the fact that uh, people are, uh, are are there's a lot of young people out there and new people that want to get involved in the sport. Yeah, definitely. I think you're on to something with uh, the mentoring program because, uh, you know, it's a lot It's a lot easier when you have someone who has the knowledge to go to them, go hunt with them, pick their brain, you know, just call them when you need them. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a good tool to have, and we need more mentors out there so that, you know, you don't have to start off ruining the dog and, you know, going through all kind of things that we really didn't need to go through if we had somebody there to kind of coach us and show us the ropes and guide us through, you know, the things that we are trying to accomplish. So definitely mentoring is a big deal, uh, especially for me. So I, I wish I had somebody, you know, I could call up and, go hang out with and, you know, go load the dogs up and, and get in the woods and, and learn stuff. Cause, uh, you know, that's, that's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. But, uh, I wish stuff. you lived down here, Eddie. We'd no, have you a wouldn't be able to, you, you wouldn't be able to get me, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to get me out of your house. I'm moving in, baby. <laughs> well, you, you, you would be welcome as my mother would say as the flowers in May, because I've, I enjoy uh, being able, I think anything that we know uh, that we've learned and and we want to share it, you know, that's just human nature. And there are a lot of guys like me. uh, We're still able to get out there and follow a hound and we want to, to impart what we've learned to guys like you. So yeah, that would be great. In fact, we're going to need to set that up for some time where we can get together for sure. Absolutely. Yes, indeed, we have to. You know, I'm I'm always I've always been one of the guys where you know I I sit back and listen and I watch. I'm not uh, I don't really talk very much, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, if I I know somebody or I see somebody who I feel like I can learn from, I want to get under their wing and just pick their brain and and just learn everything that I can from them. Mm-hmm. I've never been a uh, one of those type of people who I think I know everything, you know, because this is when you think, you know, everything, you don't know anything, you know? So, but yeah, definitely we'll have to set up something to come learn something from y'all and do something fun. So let's see what else do I got for you guys today. So, Oh, this is a question. So when you coon hunting, what type of dog is, is going to be the best dog to coon hunt and why? And I only say that because there's, <laughs> I only say that because there's, you know, several different coon hounds. And personally, I like plots. I know that Chris likes. Hey, you're a good man. Go. <laughs> I knew there was something I liked about you, man. I got, I got to butter him up, Chris. <laughs> no, but honestly, I do, I do like plots. But, you know, when you, uh, like in competition hunting, you see a lot of treeing walkers. Why do you see so many walkers as opposed to uh, the the blue ticks, the red bulls, 
or the plots, what makes that so different? And then when you go bear hunting, you see a lot of plots as opposed to, well, you know, I see a lot of walkers too, but still you see more plots. Plots are known for bear hunting. So what are the, is it DNA? Is it just, you know, over years they've been, you know, trained to go after that after that specific game or what, what, what is it? What would you say? And I'm going to go with uh, Steve on this one. Okay, Eddie. Uh, well, um, this subject came up and uh, in the podcast that our listeners have heard uh, with um, Mark Dufresne from up in uh, Maine, the registered guide. And, uh, and, and we talked about this and uh, uh, the differences uh, in the breeds. At, it boils down fundamentally to choice. Uh, to the to the type of uh, the breed of dog that a person uh, was drawn to, and how much time he put into that breed, because all of these coonhound breeds, and there's now seven with the introduction of the American Leopard Hound, they're what we call seven recognized purebreds, uh, but but they're fundamentally separated by color. Uh, they're all hounds. They're all scent hounds. They all have the treeing instinct. Uh, so then it becomes uh, a matter of how those dogs were bred by those hunters that possessed those dogs. Uh, the Walker dog uh, became very popular because of the night hunt. And it, with the foxhound background, it was quick. It was fast on its feet. It could get to the tree first. And so uh, it was a natural for the rules. Um, other people like my father who, uh, cared nothing about competition hunting whatsoever, uh, but was a houndsman to down to his toenails. He, uh, you know, he loved the plot dog because of their, their determination, that no quit attitude, the toughness, you know, he was a farm boy. He was a, a world war two combat vet. Uh, he was a pipe fitter. He walked on the high steel, as I've said before, with a, a block and tackle on his back and and things like that. And so he was tough, and he wanted a tough dog, and the, and the plot uh, fit that description for him, you know, that. And, and so I think it boils down to a lot of personal preference. The plot down through its whole ancestry has been bred for hunting big game. Uh the uh, the treeing walker, on the other hand, it, uh, and a lot of people are hunting walkers with great success on on bear, uh, but uh, I, I think it boils down more to personal preference than anything else. But then it also, if you drill down, it's how those dogs within that breed have been bred selectively for certain traits that make them excel at at the particular game. You know, Calvin Redhouse would want a dog that can trail a line on dry ground, uh, you know, in the middle of the day in Arizona, you know, and, uh, and, and my experience with what I, uh, knew to be a good cold trailing plot dog in West Virginia, I took him to West Texas. Uh, he was a lost ball in high weeds when it came, came to trailing in those kind of conditions. So it all boils down to individual preference, but I think it, it's also uh, how the dogs then are use the word customized to fit that particular type of hunting. Okay. Okay. 
you want to chime on that one, uh, Chris? Well, I just I would just say real quickly that uh, you know the easy answer is because there's ten times as many walkers as there are any other any other breed competing. <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh, yeah, uh, of course. Sure yeah, like so. It. You know, I say that, t- I s- but the Walker, uh, but the Walker man would chime in and say, Why "Exactly, are yeah, there- that's what I was getting ready to say." I say that tongue in cheek, you know, from a humorous <laughs> standpoint. Uh, you know, the the thoroughbred horse is a great horse on on the racetrack or in a jumping arena, but but I've said this before, uh, a lot of times. Uh, thoroughbred that I would get off of the racetrack is not necessarily the horse I'm going to want to ride through these southeastern Indiana hills. So uh, I think we put a lot of rules on ourselves and limitations on ourselves when when we're looking at the types of dogs that, that we want to hunt. Um, you can't argue with the success of the walker breed. There are several several accomplished walker breeders out there and when it comes to competition hunting, then as Steve said, you know these Walker breeders have capitalized on on how to breed the dog that that can be successful in that arena, and uh, I think some of it is simply we go back to that hunter stages, uh, the method stage. You know, we we get stuck in this method. If you're not hunting with a Walker, you're wrong. If you're not hunting, you know, if it's blue, it's tree. You know, put a little brindle in your kennel. But my question to you, you know, my question to you, Eddie, is is you say you you like plots, but based on what experience, how do you know you 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 like plots? And that's a good question. You know, uh, honestly, uh, I've I've had a little experience with with hounds, and they were plots, and that's the only reason why I because that's what I know. You know, I don't know. I haven't been around any other. I haven't been around a walker or, you know, a blue tick. I've been around uh, a few plots, and I like, you know, I just like them, you know. I I got to do a little bit of hunting with them, and uh, it was it was fun. It just, you know, it's like uh, in the rodeo, those guys, you ride your first bull, it's just getting your blood, you know, and that's just how it how it happened for me, you know. Not to say that you know if I hunted with a, another dog, you know, that wouldn't you know tickle my fancy, you know. So it's just what I experienced, and that's why, you know, that's all I know. You know, I don't know anything, so I honestly couldn't give you a good uh, reason or you know rhyme or reason why it would be better to hunt a plot. I just know that you know. Right now, I do like those. So, any other questions for me? Nope. Not right yet. Not yet. Nope. Not yet. <laughs> Carry on. Hey, tell us just a minute. Why the listeners here have been uh, introduced to you uh, briefly, Eddie? But tell us just a little bit about who Eddie McMillan is. There you go. That's a good question. Yeah. That is a very good question. Eddie McMillan is from Texas. He uh, loves to fish, loves to go camping, loves to be outside in the woods. Um, <clears throat> live here in Oregon now. Um, well, let me let me digress. I uh, lived in Texas, moved to Florida for a while, and. Uh, I met someone and moved up to 
Washington. And then from there, I uh, started working, uh, just became a journeyman plumber. And uh, my, uh, my wife, her cousin, or excuse me, her uncle is a duck hunting fanatic. So uh, when I get the chance and I have time to go, we go duck hunting, which is fun. Love it. Um, and two boys um, that keep me on my feet. And, uh, yeah, just a family man who likes to be outside, loves to go fishing, and, uh, yeah, just loves, loves the nature, loves nature, you know. It's, it's really, it's really crazy because, uh, growing up in Texas, you don't see mountains with snow on them year round. You know, you can see, you see little hills and, you know, little prairies and stuff like that. Man, I got here and I can right now from from my house, once I leave, walk off my street, I can see Mount Hood and it's just beautiful. It just, every time I see it, it gets me. It's like, it never gets old. It never gets old. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. So that's a little bit about me, you know, just, uh, love the outdoors, love the fish. Um, and it's really good salmon fishing. <laughs> how did, so, how uh, did you get interested in the hounds, Eddie? Well, um, you know, I love dogs. Um, always had one. And uh <clears throat> my buddy back in Texas had uh some some beagles and we would go rabbit hunting and that's how I got started. Like I was like, you know what? Once I if I ever get the opportunity uh the chance, I wanna get some uh some uh some beagles and uh do this rabbit hunting thing and from there just explored on and you know saw uh coon hunting and you know using dogs for just everything uh with deer you know and then you know that's how i just became interested and intrigued with it so yeah basically uh rabbit hunting nice i've got a question yeah. for eddie um mm -hmm. I'm an older guy, okay? Everybody knows I've passed the three score and ten. <laughs> um, have a lot of, have a lot of ideas, a lot of stories to tell, all that kind of thing. But every once in a while I get a little check in my down in my gut that, you know, maybe these younger people don't want to hear these stories about the old guys. Maybe I'm yesterday's news. Maybe you know, I need to up my game, modernize, streamline uh, my thinking. Um, what's a young guy like you at 33 years of age? Um, and you can be open about it. And, and there's nobody's judging anybody on this show. But wh what is do you think is the general consensus of the younger people out there about older people that tend to want to be? Um, you know, share all this information and so forth. Is that generally accepted or, or do we, in fact, as older hunters and houndsmen need to kind of, uh, change our rhetoric a little bit to reach the younger person? That's that a sincere that question. A very, that's a, that's a very good question. And we could probably have a whole show on that one. 
for me personally, I'm, you know, I'm not like everybody else, honestly. Um, so I love for, I call them my old schools. I love my old schools to, to give me my knowledge and my wisdom. And I kind of model myself after that. And that's what I like. Now, I feel like the younger generation, <laughs> they're kind of lost. Like, uh, I don't understand a lot of things that they do, but to, I guess, uh, reach them, yeah, you would have to kind of, you know, kind of talk their lingo, I guess you would say, for lack of better words, to, to you know, get to them uh, and, and, and reach them. But I feel like uh, once you do, they want that knowledge. I mean, who doesn't? You know, if you have somebody who's trying to, trying to tell you something and try to give you, you know, knowledge to where you don't have to make that same mistake that they did, why wouldn't you want that, you know? And that's what I, that's what I hope to get out of, out of a mentor, you know, out of a, you know, an older person who's been there and done that, you know? It's like, <clears throat> growing up, I was so hard-headed, you know? I didn't, I didn't want to listen to anything my mom had to say, but everything I, i'm telling you 100 percent of what she told me was 100 percent correct and i I'm, i right hand to the man i'm telling you she was 100 percent correct and it took me up into my 30s to, to honestly realize that you know she might have been hard on me or you know i might not have liked what, what she said but she was coming from a genuine good place and everything that she ever told me was a hundred percent correct. So once we, as young people, uh, open up our minds and really just try to try to see where the other person's coming from and try to respect that knowledge, to respect them to know that hey, you know what, they are older, they have been around longer, and they have been through things. It's like you know, you think that you're going through something new, but you're not. You know, we've already been through that. So let me help you with that. So, you know, it's a it's a tight a tight line to, to walk with them to try to, you know, get get your point across and, and help them understand that, hey, I'm not I'm not here to uh try to get down on you. I just wanna I wanna teach you something. I wanna, you know, I wanna help you out. So, you know, and then just kids in general, you know, nowadays are just, I don't know what to say, eating Tide Pods and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I mean, we really need to, <laughs> we really need to grab a hold. We really need to grab a hold of these kids, seriously, because it's just spinning out of control. Games, <laughs> I, <laughs> I saw games, something. Throw the games I, away. I got to jump away. in. Let's get outside. Let's That's get the right. Work. That's right. I saw something today on social media. It says, uh, uh, how about going back to eating your Tide Pods and uh, Tide Pods and leave our ice cream alone? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this latest craze, I guess, is going and licking the ice cream in the store and putting the lid back on. Yeah, I don't know, Eddie. But, I got a I've, I yeah, got a I, question to jump in here real quick, if you don't mind, Steve. No, go. Okay, Eddie. Do you think it's because uh, the maybe the reluctance from some of our younger younger hunters or, or younger people that are trying to get into hunting is because uh, as as older, more experienced hunters, we've made ourselves less accessible to the younger generation. 
Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, whether you're training a young dog or you're training a young hunter, sometimes you can get extremely frustrated. Uh, and so has the, has the older generation failed to, um, be open and accessible to these younger hunters? What's your opinion? Yeah, yeah, I I can honestly sit there and say that you you might be on to something with that. Uh, You know, older, you know, older generations, they are stuck in their ways, you know, like (laughs) they, they have a certain, (laughs) they have a certain way, they have, you know, they like, they like the things in a certain order and you got this young whippersnapper coming over here, want to do this and that and you're like, hey, slow your road, you need to chill out. And you kind of put the reins on them a little bit, and they like, I don't really know, I don't like that. So you know, it's definitely as you know, mentors, you gotta you gotta loosen up, you gotta be open and have patience. It's like you know, with kids, you just exactly what it is. You have to have patience with kids. It takes a lot of patience, even with young dogs. You have to have patience, and that's what it is. You know, you just gotta take a breath and say, you know what, I'm not going to take what I think, but I'm just going to keep on going with you. You know, we're going to get through this together. You know, don't give up on them. And, uh, that's, yeah, would, basically don't, don't give up on them and have, I patience. would follow up, you know, a lot of times I think, I think, uh, as people, we think, well, you know, I already made the comment that I've got gray in my beard. The only thing I had to do to get that gray in my beard was continue to wake up every day. That's all I had to do. Mm-hmm. But, Sometimes we get confused with uh, thinking because we've got age that sometime, somehow uh, we we have we have gained wisdom with that. And certainly day to day living, you know, you talk to somebody that's that's well up in their eighties, nineties, they've got a lot of wisdom to impart. But just for your average houndsman to think, well, I've been hunting for thirty years, and uh, so I know everything is the wrong attitude for the for the veteran houndsman to have i've met you take you take uh uh ben jones down there in greenville tennessee he hunts every day he hunts all across the united states there's a lot that chris powell can learn from a guy like ben jones so we can't just simply write this off as i'm older i know more so the older generation also has to realize right. that there's a lot to learn from from younger houndsmen as well. But like like we said before, though, in that in those phases, there's a never it, it doesn't end. You always are learning. You're always you know you're figuring things out. So as being a how we say a, a veteran uh, houndsman, you with knowing everything that you've been through and where you're going you already know that there's a lot more things that you have to learn yes you know a lot but there's more that can be done and you can't sit here and think oh well i've been hunting for you know 40 years i know everything you may have been you may have been doing you know a lot you may have been doing it wrong for 40 years (laughs) you know there's plenty of people out there like that wrong for 40 years you just gotta stay humble, you know. Stay humble and, and and help when you can, you know. Pretty much, you know. You just you can't think you know everything because you don't. And you know, and the 
for the younger generation, it goes the same way for them. You know, you think you know everything, but you don't. Just sit back and be quiet and watch, you know, yeah. and just learn something. So it, it goes both ways. It really See, does. I was I was very fortunate to have a dad that was a houndsman. He knew a lot, but he never was overbearing with his knowledge uh, in any other area except gun safety. <laughs> and he, and when it came to gun safety, he was preaching constantly, check that safety, watch that barrel, unload that gun. But, uh, you know, I think about things that my dad taught me, and I'll give you one little example here. And it doesn't really have anything to do with hounds, but uh, I uh, recently, a couple years ago, we had this Hurricane Irma that came up up through Florida here, and and the county uh, would bring in dump trucks full of sand and provide the bags, and people could go and fill sandbags to put around their homes uh, in anticipation of the uh, the hurricane. Well. I went to do that, of course, and I have a, an area here in the back of my house. I thought maybe there might get some water damage. Uh, and so anyway, I'm filling sandbags and I, and I'm, there's a huge pile there and I see people taking the shovel and digging off the top of the pile and putting <laughs> this, uh, and putting sand in, into mm. these bags and they're struggling and it's going to, you know, my dad taught me when I was very young. Hey, son, let me show you here. Take that. Take right at the bottom of the pile. Slide your shovel in right there. Dig from the bottom. Dig close from me. You know, and man, I'm filling sandbags like a machine here, this 70-year-old guy. And these yeah. young guys, these young bucks, they're struggling, you know. And and I'll, and it's just little things like that, you know, that we pick, we can impart to people without lording it over them on them right. you know uh hey mm -hmm. hey guy i see a, a guy out there uh with two leashes on a couple of young dogs and they're they're wrapping them around his legs and and all this mm -hmm. stuff and i say hey son you know they make a double couple here let me show you how to take an old o-ring and a couple of s hooks right. and make yourself a double couple and clip that onto your onto your leash, and then you've got those two dogs right side by side, and you can handle them just like it was one. You know, little things like that that we can impart to these hunters without being, hey, dummy, you know, right, uh, those right. dogs are going to trip you. Don't you know any better than that? No, right. it's all in the attitude, I think. Uh, yeah, but, you know, the delivery. You got to, the way you deliver the message, you, you know, it also helps to be for people in general to be more receptive to it you know you, you can't just scream at somebody and expect them to you know want to listen to what you have to say so well, i you can know. i can throw in something real quick there eddie i'm going to be much more uh, motivated to help somebody who wants to learn if 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 a young houndsman comes into the mix and and they're trying to tell me everything they know. They're trying to tell me all of their experience. They, they're trying to get this validation through bragging. I'm going to let that guy get those hounds tangled around his, around his legs and let him struggle. And I'm not going to mention a thing. Now, I may see another, uh, another young guy over here having the same thing, and he's struggling. You can tell he's frustrated. I know that he's been, you know, he's coming at it with the right heart. So that's what I would say to younger houndsmen is, Man, I mean, you walk in 
to those situations, and you've got the opportunity to pick the minds of some of the greatest houndsmen in the world, you know, at times. And you've got to approach that, and we've said it before, with humility and and, and not be trying to imp- – you're not going to impress Steve Fielder with your dog that's going to – you know, you think you could win some night hunts with. You know, he's put more – he's handed more world championship trophies to, to people than any person – the history of this sport. And so you bragging about your pot liquor that might, you know, might, it's not going to impress us. But if you come at it with, from the standpoint of, Hey, I want to learn, uh, tell me the stories, come at it from that attitude. And I guarantee you these older, more experienced, the more experienced houndsmen, I I hate to say older because we're not, that's not always holding true, but these more experienced houndsmen are going to be willing to share their knowledge with someone who wants to learn rather than wanting to impress. Exactly. Well said. Well said. Very well said. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, well, I think that's all the questions I got for y'all today. Well, good deal, Eddie. I I tell you what, I've enjoyed this and uh, uh, kind of put a new twist on on our podcast here, and it was fun. It was fun. I'm really excited about uh, you being involved in in the hound sports and and wanting to learn more. I would really encourage you if you haven't done so already to get involved with the with the Oregon United Sporting Dog Alliance or association out there and, and get to know these houndsmen. Yep. And I guarantee you that, that they will be willing to welcome you with open arms. And, and, you know, that's so important, you know, just get to know the sport, get mm-hmm. to know these houndsmen and that's how you get started. Definitely. Definitely. And I, I'm, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to talk with you guys and, ask you a few questions and uh it's been great i i've enjoyed it thank you very much well eddie it's been a great experience for me i feel like i've met a new friend made a new friend and that invitation to come to florida i would suggest that you wait until the winter time (laughs) unless you like uh, unless you like creepy crawly things of all descriptions um (laughs) and yeah but uh yeah Anyway, I, I wish you the very best as you go forward and, and and with your children and with your job. My dad was a plumber and pipe fitter uh, oh. and uh, served him well for for thirty some years. And uh, so, uh, just the, the the fringe benefit of this podcast to me is meeting people like yep. you. And I I really appreciate your time with us today and keeping old Chris and me on our toes. And, <laughs> and challenging us with your questions. And uh, I just hope that there's some young hunter out there that wants to be like Eddie wants to learn (laughs) and and will, will, uh, will come forward with their questions and, and so forth. Uh, And really, I I think we've imparted a lot of good information to uh, new hunters and young hunters today. And I, I just hope that it'll, it'll find root and will grow and, and these people will, will have a lifelong uh, s- sport that they can enjoy like I have. Yeah, well, like you said, you know, you got to, you know, it's kind of, you don't want to sound like a, you know, like an idiot, like, well, I don't know if I should ask this question, you know, because, 
how they might, you know, respond as far as, you know, thinking it was a stupid question or not. But regardless of what the question is or how you may feel about it, just ask the question, you know, regardless of what you feel like they're going to say, just ask the question. That's all it takes is that one question can spark so much more than you can even think, you know. It was just like it took a lot for me to even approach Chris with the, you know, well, hey, you know, I, I want to become a houndsman. What, what do I need to start? What do I need to do? And I am so grateful of how uh, accepting and, and friendly he was to me. And it, it kind of took me back for a second. I'm like, wow, he, he actually is talking to me. <laughs> so, you know, you know, from that one, that one spark, you know, from the podcast where you guys were like, hey, you guys want to, the young guys need to get out there. There's, you know, people want to share that wisdom. And I was just like, you know what? I'm doing it. And I, I, I you know, I did. And, and look where I'm at now. You're so, hosting the Houndsman you know, XP podcast. <laughs> That's right. Know, like, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't processed that. But um, it, 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 it's been amazing. And I'm just, you know, I, I hope that there are more people out there like you guys who are willing to share your knowledge and, and uh, just be helpful in any way that you can because you, you just any anything that uh, I've asked you guys have just given me solid answers and, and very good uh, information. So it's our pleasure, Eddie. I'll leave it at that. It's our pleasure. Absolutely, absolutely, Eddie. We've been the benefactors for yep. sure. Well, Steve, I'm going to wrap. Yeah. Uh, I definitely got it. You you done you done, Eddie? You done with all your concluders? Can I, I can I can I step back into the host mode here yes sir one more but steve definitely we're gonna uh i'm coming down to florida and we're all gonna, right we're gonna do some hunting i'm proud yeah all right man yep. it's a day right. it's a day we'll just figure out the the details okay That's good yes sir, yes, sir. all right well, steve you always close us out with those famous words why don't you get her done yeah it's that it's that time of year uh or time of day <laughs> I guess again, Chris, man, this has been fun. I've enjoyed this podcast tremendously. I can't believe it's over. Well, I'm going to tell you and Eddie, just like, uh, I tell, uh, our listeners every week in the words of John Harrison, West Virginia, uh, when he, they turned the hounds loose on a bear, uh, Chris and Eddie, you follow your hounds and I'll follow mine.